0: In October 1928, the novelist Virginia Woolf gave two lectures to literary societies at women's colleges at Cambridge University. Her subject was women and fiction, and she ranged throughout history to build up her case for how, for centuries, structural inequality had systematically excluded half the population from literary work. The lectures were later published as an extended essay which has been so popular in the decades since that it's never gone out of print. Detective fiction in the 1920s had no shortage of successful women writers, but they were still subject to all of the same intellectual and economic oppressions that Wolfe laid out. Dorothy L. Sayers, for instance, had a university degree and a great talent for writing, but she still struggled with the feeling that she didn't fit into an intellectual sphere and an economic system designed by and for men that's what we're going to look at today. To paraphrase from Virginia Woolf, if a woman needs a room of her own and £500 a year to write fiction, what does she need in order to write crime fiction? Welcome to She Done It, I'm Caroline Crampton. the most popular authors from the golden age of detective fiction, Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham and Naya Marsh, are often referred to as the queens of crime. I have yet to track this phrase back to its source, so I'm not sure exactly when or why this moniker attached itself to these writers in particular, but I'm sure their popularity and ubiquity had a lot to do with what was originally probably a publicity ploy. The phrase has lasted though, because it represents a truth, Against the example of other literary genres, some of the highest profile crime writers from the 1920s and 30s were women. The title and premise of this very podcast is an allusion to that fact. To put it another way, there aren't any kings of crime. Which is not to say that there weren't successful male crime writers. Of course there were. Anthony Barclay, Ronald Knox, John Dixon Carr and others all thrived alongside Christie, Sayers and the rest. But the prevalence and indeed dominance of these women novelists was sufficiently remarkable that it was worth pointing out to readers. It was noticeable and unusual that not all of the popular whodunits from this time were written by men, in other words. There had been women novelists writing professionally before, of course, albeit often under a male pseudonym. But the public success of so many women working in one genre, as can be seen in golden age detective fiction, was unprecedented. And the fact that it happened at
1: all had a lot to do with a series of rapid societal changes in the nineteen tens and twenties. The universities were opening up to women and allowing them for the first time to take degrees, at least at Oxford, Cambridge didn't for many years after that, I think till nineteen forty-eight. But there was a sense that possibilities were expanding, the suffrage movement was growing. And I think women like Dorothy Sayers, who'd graduated from university and were looking to live an independent kind of life very different, from lives that their mothers would have led, were looking to find places where they could set up home, not just in a family home, but living by themselves or with friends and dedicating their lives to their work.
0: This is Francesca Wade, the author of Square Haunting, Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars. She spent years researching this moment of opening up that occurred in the period between the First and Second World Wars, when at least for a certain class of women, there were suddenly more options beyond the traditional paths of wife and mother. Many different factors had coincided to make this change possible. Decades of campaigning by women in Britain's universities had finally resulted in some institutions allowing women students to receive degrees, meaning that they had credentials they could take out into the world to push for jobs on equal footing with male graduates. Legal changes in the 1870s and 80s enabled married women to own and manage their own property, Until this happened, anything that a wife earned or possessed legally belonged to her husband. In 1918, the Representation of the People Act was passed, which allowed women over 30 to vote, about two-thirds of women qualified. And in 1928, women over 21 were given the same voting rights as men. As we've talked about several times before on the podcast, the First World War also had a profound impact on how women were perceived. As men went to war, women took over their roles in factories, on farms and in offices, as well as serving in the forces. When the armistice was signed in November 1918, it was much harder than before to tell women that they just weren't allowed to do things, when they'd been flourishing in these roles for four years. This is where Wolfe's Room of One's Own comes in. It's all very well having the ambition to write professionally, but as her essay lays out, without physical and mental space, and the economic resources that provide both of those, it's less likely to happen. Francesca's book is about the lives of five women who at one time or another lived in one London square. They all came to Mecklenburg Square in Bloomsbury seeking their own rooms and the time to write in them and although they weren't all crime writers I think their experiences are very instructive. I'll let Francesca introduce them to you.
1: The first woman is the poet Hilda Doolittle, the imagist poet who came over to England from America in 1911 and lived during the First World War in Mecklenburg Square. Her husband, Richard Aldington, was away fighting and she was living in the square working on a series of translations from Greek tragic choruses, particularly focused on the suffering of women left at home by war. The second is Dorothy Sayers, the detective novelist who moved into the very same flat that HD had left just a few years before. And she spent the year there working on her very first detective novel, Whose Body? Next is the classicist Jane Harrison, who came to the square in her 70s. She'd spent most of her career in Cambridge where she'd written these groundbreaking works of quite imaginative sort of mythological excavation that restored these matriarchal goddesses to history who she argued had been erased by later cults to the kind of patriarchal gods of Olympus that we know about. And she came to the square with her partner Hope Merleys to work on Russian translation. The fourth is the medieval historian Eileen Power, who was an amazing scholar and pacifist and internationalist. And she taught economic history at the London School of economics and was known for her radio broadcasts of world history to school children and for the kind of parties that she hosted in her kitchen. And the last is Virginia Woolf, who is the most associated with Bloomsbury, I guess, of all of these women, or maybe of everyone. And she moved in the very week that the Second World War was declared and spent a very kind of uneasy year moving between London and the countryside, working on her memoirs and a biography of her friend Roger Fry and her final novel, Between the Acts.
0: Bloomsbury is now a term used to describe the middle-class bohemian set that Wolfe and her artist sister Vanessa Bell belonged to, as well as the name for the central London district around the British Museum where many of these people lived. Until I read Francesca's book, I thought it was pure coincidence that it was this part of the city that attracted these creative people. But it turns out, Mecklenburg Square and a few others around it, were ideally suited to women in search of rooms of their own, thanks to a quirk of architecture and property development.
1: Bloomsbury has a really interesting architectural history. It was laid out um, or developed over the course of the 19th century on land belonging to the Duke of Bedford, who initially wanted to create a kind of upper middle class suburb with grand mansions for middle class families. But by the time these squares were ready to live in, most families who could have afforded to live there actually wanted to live in West London, where the area was much more fashionable. So Bloomsbury ended up in this strange um, situation of having these sort of huge houses, which no one wanted to buy or live in. So they ended up being generally divided up into flats and this happened after you know, quite a lot of debate in Mecklenburg and Brunswick Square.
0: Because the grand houses were divided up into flats or even individual rooms, they were affordable for women who needed somewhere to be alone with their ideas. The Stevens sisters, Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, as they were after they married, first moved to Bloomsbury from Kensington when their father died in 1904. By the time the First World War ended, the area was already associated with literary and artistic endeavour.
1: Bloomsbury, of course, had a very literary reputation already because it was the, um, the neighbourhood of the British Museum, which was the library open for everyone to come and read in um, free of charge. And there were universities around. So it was a, a place where in particular women who had kind of literary or intellectual aspirations could congregate.
0: In the immediate aftermath of her graduation from Oxford in 1920, Dorothy L Sayers felt the pull of literary London acutely. She was one of the first women to receive a proper degree from the university. But even in that moment of triumph and progress, there was uncertainty. What could a female graduate do in the real world? Even among the five women profiled in Francesca's book, there weren't many optimistic role models for the likes of Sayers.
1: And I think they were establishing ways that, that they could have it for themselves and and that other women could could have it in the future. I mean, Jane Harrison is an amazing example, I think, of she's a generation older than the other women in this book. And she, after she left, she was one of the first women to study at Cambridge. Um, and after she left, she found it very difficult to find a job because she was excluded from the kind of professorships at universities simply for, for being a woman. And her career is a really amazing example of, of a woman reshaping the way that she works and the work that she does in order to carve out a new image of what a a woman scholar could look like. The
0: option for Sayers' generation seemed quite limited. Teach or marry. Neither appealed to her, and she was determined to forge a different path as a writer. She wrote to her parents that, more than ever, I realised the paramount necessity of always being on the spot. I feel as if I hardly dared leave London for a second. In December 1920, she moved into number 44 Mecklenburg Square, the very room, in fact, that the poet Hilda Doolittle had vacated in 1918.
1: They all lived in... In different circumstances, there. I mean, when Sayers moved in, the house number forty-four that she moved into was was one of the boarding houses. So She writes a lot about the landlady, who was clearly quite an eccentric figure who lived in the house and rented out the rooms and you know, took an interest in the lives of her tenants. And she says that she thinks that the landlady particularly sort of enjoyed having slightly kind of bohemian people around. H. D. writes about the suffragettes who lived upstairs and who could always be heard sort of burning their toast and. And And I think Sayers enjoyed that sense of kind of rubbing along and having to get on with her neighbours and and, doing her laundry and doing her cooking and living a life that to her was one of independence.
0: Sayers described the room as having three great windows she could not afford to curtain, a fireplace, a gas ring and no electric light. She wrote at the time that all I want is to be left alone and I can't think why people won't leave me. Despite her reluctance to become a full-time teacher, the necessity of earning a living led her to accept a temporary post at a school in Clapham, South London. And she did some freelance translation work as well. In January 1921, she was visited by the idea for a detective story in which a corpse is found dead in a bath wearing Pants nez. The room was working its magic already. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. and how a young filipino woman named josefina guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of world war ii i'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking as i love puzzles and to me it often feels like the real life counterpart to solving a mystery i loved the episode called the unbreakable navajo code about a group of native american soldiers who devised a code for the allies use and i also really enjoyed the one about emily anderson an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. In 1921, Dorothy L. Sayers was a figure imagined by Wolfe in her essay, an unknown girl writing her first novel in a bed-sitting room. She was getting by on her teaching and freelance income, but she wanted more. And commercially successful detective fiction – is the way she was going to get it. In
1: looking at the letters that she wrote to her parents and to her friends at that time, she's so determined that she wants to do something different and she's so kind of single-minded in in her insistence that she will do whatever it takes to finish her novel.
0: Although Bloomsbury today is a very expensive and sought-after neighbourhood, at the time when Sayers lived there, it was not fashionable and not particularly expensive. That's why she was able to afford to live there at the start of her career, after all the boarding house at number 44 Mecklenburg Square employed someone to do the washing up and basic cleaning, which was a great luxury for someone trying to write a book. But in other ways, it was hardly a fancy place to live. Sayers' room didn't come with curtains or electricity, so she lit the room with an oil lamp and enjoyed the view of the tennis courts in the middle of the square at all hours. She fried her own meals on her little gas ring or went out to eat at cheap restaurants in the West End. As long as she could keep paying the rent for her room, She still had a foothold in literary London, she felt. Her fiction became a kind of financial escapism, as well as a means of hopefully earning money in the future.
1: There's a a letter she, or an essay she wrote later, where she said that part of the way that she created Lord Peter Wimsey was by giving him all of the kind of accoutrements that she, at that point, couldn't have herself. When she didn't have enough money to pay her bus fare, she gave him a kind of horse and carriage and you know, a rare book collection when she was sort of off to the library.
0: Years later, when Sayers had moved away from Mecklenburg Square, she returned in her imagination by giving that same address to Harriet Vane. Gordy Knight, published in 1935, is the third book in which Vane appears. She's a detective novelist who shares some of Sayers' own
1: experiences, including that view from her desk
0: out onto the square.
1: I think you know, the significance in Gordie Knight of, of Sayers giving that address to Harriet Vane. I think is, is very notable, because that novel is so much about all the questions that Sayers was really asking during her year there, I think, about you know, how to live a life that combined intellectual and emotional satisfaction and what sort of life she wanted to read and what sort of books she wanted to write. At the
0: start of the novel, Harriet is looking out the window at the tennis players and the tulips, and thinking back to the quadrangles of the Oxford Women's College where she'd been educated, and wondering whether her life now is the one that she would have imagined for herself then, she decides that she will return to the college for a reunion, even though she's worried that her infamous past, she lived with a man without being married to him and was then tried for his murder, will make it awkward. Sayers didn't have those kinds of regrets, but she did leave years before returning to her own Somerville College, I think perhaps partly because she felt that her career as a crime writer was not the academically high-flying profession that had been expected of her as a student. As I talked about on the happily ever after episode of the podcast, Gordy Knight is a novel about female ambition and whether emotional and intellectual life can coexist within an equal marriage. The time that Sayre spent living in Mecklenburg Square was clearly formative for her on both of these subjects. It's where she completed her first novel. And it's also where she experienced great heartache in an ultimately doomed relationship. Whether or not it was a completely happy time, the days she spent sat at the desk above the square like Harriet stayed with her. It was her first room of her own, and she would not forget that easily. Francesca argues in her book that Sayers could not put the difficulties of her time in Mecklenburg Square behind her until she'd written about it, and I think that's what we see her doing in Gordy Night. As Harriet learns to reconcile the two parts of her life, before her trial and after, she becomes more at ease with the links between Mecklenburg Square and Shrewsbury College. She's able to see her life as a progression from one place to the next, and to command respect in each, rather than having to hide from her past. Wolfe's essay is about equality, and her argument that women require a room of one's own has resonated with the feminist movement for decades. Plenty still find it inspiring. But I think it's just as important to look at who doesn't get to inhabit such a room as it is to celebrate those, like Wolfe, Sayers and others, who do. As I've already mentioned, as a movement, Bloomsbury was a very middle-class enterprise. Wolfe, her sister and her friends were able to spend lengthy periods of time working on their novels and paintings because they were from wealthy families and didn't have to work for an hourly wage in order to make ends meet. They could hire domestic help so that they could ignore the constant demands of cooking and cleaning. Even when she lived at No. 44 Mecklenburg Square in the early 1920s, Sayers benefited from the fact that the boarding house had a regular cleaning woman who took care of the basic chores for the residents. The room and the money that Wolf mentions aren't the only things you need, it would seem. You need somebody else to shoulder the domestic labour. In one sense, it's unfair to apply this critique too strongly to Wolfe's argument. Just because housework has traditionally been women's work, it doesn't mean that the women who choose to seek a different kind of life must bear the ethical burden of resolving this conundrum in its entirety. Wolfe's husband Leonard, also a writer, undoubtedly benefited greatly from their servants' work too. Yet because Virginia actually wrote about this issue, her work attracts more dissent on the subject. Criticism for hiring cleaners still today falls disproportionately on women because there's still a lingering assumption that a woman should be doing that kind of work for herself, that it's a woman's work, not a man's. Feminist writers have been grappling with this question for decades, and recently there's been some great work on applying this historically, such as in Katrina Marsal's book Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? It's an interesting exercise, I find, when reading the work of great male authors of centuries past, to wonder who was beavering away elsewhere in their house in order to have dinner ready when they decided to stop writing for the day. All of the women that Francesca writes about in Square Haunting were more or less aware of their privilege in this area, and some of them addressed it directly in their writing.
1: I mean, it's something that a lot of these women thought about a lot, and I mean, sometimes, you know, it is, it is contradictory and hypocritical to some extent. I mean, Eileen Power, for example, had a housekeeper who was, you know, by all accounts, very integral and sort of devoted part of her household. And it's hard to, she doesn't you know, mention her too much in her, in the correspondence that survives, but it's difficult to know whether she would have seen the sort of <laughs> incongruity that her own independence did rely on the labour of another woman you know, within her household. And it's something that that Virginia Woolf thought about a lot, in fact, and at this later time in her life was reflecting on quite a lot more the kind of discomfort that the freedom that she had obtained and had argued for was not applied to the women who actually lived and worked with her in the house. Um, and it's something that I think you know, a lot of women at of, of this time in particular were, were kind of complicit in, but also you know, wondering about in interesting ways. This is one of the things I found startling
0: about Francesca's book, actually. So many of the concerns that Wolfe, Sayers and the rest were thinking about are the same ones that women face today. In the expanded version of her initial talks that was published in 1929, Wolfe ranges through literary history, seeking to explain why there are so few women poets from the Elizabethan era, say, or why it's significant that Jane Austen never married or had children. As she says to the women students she was addressing, the thwarted literary spirit of Shakespeare's sister, quote, lives in you and me and in many other women who are not here tonight, for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. Equal pay is also something that comes up in Francesca's research.
1: They, I guess, were kind of emerging at a time where they really had to negotiate the barriers that very much did remain often you know slightly more subtle ones. I mean Eileen Power for example, was furious that she was paid less than her male contemporaries even when she was doing the same work or collaborating with them, she writes um, amusingly about how how often she would you know turn up at, at dinners in her honor and the men would just as- assume that she was you know someone's wife rather than the professor of economic history that they had all come. To celebrate she was very alert to that sort of disparity um, and kind of enjoyed and sort of relished defying people's expectations whilst also being very keenly aware of the you know prejudice that she was having to constantly fight.
0: And what women were allowed to wear if they were to be considered serious?
1: Eileen Power also loved clothes and fashion and um, she didn't think that if you wanted to be taken seriously as a woman intellectual, you should look as a sort of, you know, dowdy blue stocking that was itself the stereotype, that was the kind of allowable image of a woman intellectual. Um, she, you know, she didn't think there was any incongruity in in loving clothes and and being interested in them.
0: Sayers was very interested in this question of feminine presentation too.
1: There's some amazing descriptions of her at university wearing kind of increasingly outlandish costumes and sort of skull and crossbones, cufflinks, and kind of earrings of parrots in cages. And in fact, later in life, she generally kind of moved into wearing male clothing because she wrote this essay, Are Women Human, where she, you know, insists that the virtues that are, you know, traditionally considered feminine are, you know, ones that subordinate women and and that she doesn't want to be considered as a woman, she wants to be considered a person, which actually is a refrain, strangely, that, that links several of the women in this book when they wrote about, about questions of gender. They all write repeatedly about wanting to be treated as a person, You know whether that meant redefining femininity or, or changing people's
0: impressions. That essay, Are Women Human?, began as an address that Sayers gave to a women's society in 1938. In it, she argues for true equality, in which she is not a woman writer, but just a writer. Among detective novelists, at least, I think she achieved this. Perhaps because of the ubiquity of female authors in the genre. There's no sense today that there is women's golden age detective fiction, as distinct from men's. Not least because many of the best-selling and most influential books were written by women anyway. The power imbalances that are present in other areas of literary endeavour are absent. It isn't just an analysis of class and labour that is largely missing in Wolfe's A Room of One's Own. The black American writer Alice Walker, in the title essay of her 1982 collection, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, applies Wolfe's historical analysis of female creativity to racial oppression. Walker writes... What did it mean for a black woman to be an artist in our grandmother's day, in our great-grandmother's day? It's a question with an answer cruel enough to stop the blood. Walker goes on to write about the 18th century African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley, who was captured and enslaved at the age of seven, and transported to North America from her home in West Africa to serve a white family. Wheatley became famous for her poetry, largely on the terms of her owners who promoted her as a kind of curiosity or anomaly. Phyllis was allowed to write, but she lacked the autonomy that Wolfe never even had to question. It's meaningless to talk of having a sufficient income and owning a room with a lockable door, Walker argues, when we talk of Phyllis Wheatley, who, quote, owned not even herself. What matters about Wheatley, the S.O. goes on, is not the poetry herself, which was written in the colonised context that she inhabited, but the notion of black women's creativity that she kept alive through her writing. The room of one's own was never just a room, of course. The slightly dowdy little flats in Bloomsbury that Sayers and countless others occupied in the years when they were still affordable for struggling writers were not inherently creative spaces in and of themselves. It was the separation that they represented that mattered. Decades on, it's still pretty much the case that you need some financial security and mental freedom to ignore the rest of the world in order to write. The only difference is that now I think we're talking more about who has access to these things and who doesn't, and why that might be. Crime writing is no exception to this. As Wolf asked then, who gets to have the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what they think matters? And it isn't everybody, yet.